Amen, amen. Hey, well, it was a good worship, wasn't it, this morning? Amen? Amen, amen. Hey, man, this is just off the cuff. This is not going to be on the screen, man. As we were sitting there singing these songs, I just got a little, oh, man, I just got jacked up for Jesus. I'm just telling you, I'm so excited this morning. I'll probably blow right past all my notes. Who knows what's going to happen here this morning? But listen to this. This is so awesome. Praise the Lord. Amen. Y'all are live out there, man. I want you to get as excited as I am this morning. But he says, praise the Lord. This is Psalms 150. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his high heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a lute and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dance. Praise him with a string and pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Amen, Daryl. <laughs> Praise God for real cymbals, eh, brother? And I love this last part, but let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That means everything. That means every insect, every, every creature, every animal, every person, man, one day, whether you want to or not, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I just had to get that out. If I didn't get that out, I don't know if I could say anything else this morning in our resurgence series. And today we're going to talk about resurgence requires perseverance. Resurgence requires perseverance. And I want to start off this morning by summarizing an article written by C.S. Lewis back way back in 1945. And it's the, the uh, title of this article was called Meditations in a Tool Shed. I'm not sure why anybody would want to meditate in a tool shed, but it was a really a fascinating article. And in this article, he draws out a picture that he's sitting there in this tool shed and it's completely dark in there. He can't see anything, but all of a sudden through the top of the door comes this little beam of light. And he begins to focus on that beam of light and he can see all these little specks of dust just floating around. And so he's sitting there and he's, his kind of curiosity is getting to him. So he gets up and he begins to look through. He begins to look alongside of that light beam. And when he did so, what he could see was all of a sudden he saw some green leaves on the tree. And then he could see the branches and he could see that the leaves and the branches kind of swaying back and forth with the wind. And then he could see blue skies and he could see clouds passing by. And then all of a sudden, as the clouds pass by, all of a sudden, he gets a glimpse of the sun. He gets a glimpse of the source of that light. And here's the point in the story. Looking at the sunbeam and along the beam, completely two different experiences. And so it wasn't until he begins to move towards the light that his whole perspective begins to change. His whole experience begins to change. And now because he can see the source of that light. And he poses a question in this article that I thought was really fascinating. It's the concept of two different experiences or, or two different perspectives. And first experience is that, you know, when we see something we, we've never seen before, we begin to stare at it. Maybe we don't understand it. We're, so we begin to analyze it and try to figure this whole thing out, you know. But then there's the second experience that we begin to move closer to it. We begin to look through it. We begin to look alongside of that. And that's a whole different experience because now we see its source. So let me ask you guys a question. What do you think gives you a better picture of the sun? Sitting in a dark room with the sunbeam or looking through and alongside that beam so that you see the source, the sun? And so it's just that sunbeam 
all it's going to do is reveal a few particles of dust in the air. But staring alongside that beam, all of a sudden we began to see the sun that created the sunbeam. And I think the only thing that keeps us from moving from the sunbeam to a whole a completely different experience of discovering the source of the sunbeam is this thing that we know as fear. And just like that sunbeam experience, we need to stop merely looking at the things that God has done in the past. We need to stop looking at the Word of God as merely something to apply our lives by here and there best we can. When we begin to look through it as the source, we begin to look through it as the, knowing the author that wrote this, our awesome God this morning. And so in order to do that, it's going to require perseverance, guys, does it not? In Nehemiah's vision for a resurgence in the hearts and lives of people, it was being accomplished through the rebuilding of the wall. But it wasn't so much the building of the wall, or it wasn't even really so much of the unity of the people as they got together. It really wasn't that. It was God working through the rebuilding of wall. It was God working through the unity of the people that the people began to see God in all this. That's my point. Sometimes we need to stop looking at, we need to look through and look along so we find God in the picture and we begin to apply God in our lives. So God was bringing a resurgence in their hearts through the rebuilding of the wall. And man, last week, Jeff did a phenomenal job, did he not? If you didn't, if you didn't see last week, you need to go back and go online and watch it. Because he was leading us through chapter 4 and 5. And if you remember, at the very end of it, man, I love this point he made because he said that Nehemiah was this type of Christ. And man, I thought that was so fitting. Because God used Nehemiah as a type of Christ to restore Judah back into a right relationship with himself. But this whole thing, if you remember, just started out with Nehemiah's just heart for a resurgence. There was a resurgence in his own heart. In other words, a revival, a renewal. And then he wanted to see that happen in the hearts and life of the people in Jerusalem. And so in order to do that, man, it's going to take a willingness for men and women to step up, be willing to worship God through the next season in your life and through the next season here at Redemption Church. Because as I read my Bible, and Jeff brought this point out last week, I don't see the war being won, not until Jesus comes back and defeats Satan, but until then, we don't win anything. We, we might win some battles along the way here and there, but that's what we see here. So in chapter 4, we saw that the opposition, we saw the opposition beginning to rise up against Nehemiah, the plan to attack Jerusalem before they even had the wall even completed. And if you remember what happened, it, it didn't work. Why? Because they persevered. Nehemiah had the people, he, he strategically had placed them in parts where the wall wasn't quite finished yet. And so here these guys were, man. They're working construction with one hand and they got the sword in the other. If you remember, I'm not sure how that works out, being able to do that. Maybe they were slinging mud for the stones with the sword. I, I don't know. But that's what the Bible says that they were doing. Nehemiah tells them something really profound. He says, do not be afraid of them. He, he says, remember our great and awesome God. In other words, don't be focused on the sunbeam. Be focused on the source of the beam. And so from that point on, all the workers, they begin to work on the construction of the wall. But here's the thing. Does the opposition stop? No. 
it just finds another way. In chapter five last week, we saw all the people, remember they were oppressed? Remember they were out there working probably in the hot sun and they were building and putting the wall up and all of a sudden they were getting hungry. They were starving to death because they had already spent everything they had. Remember they had to mortgage their houses, mortgage their, vin their uh, vineyards. They had to sell everything up for two reasons. They had to buy food. And also they had high taxes. So they were borrowing money from the Jewish nobles at a high interest rate. And so Nehemiah decides to call the nobles out on it, these Jewish nobles out on it. And so they have this kind of a town hall meeting, and he straightens this whole mess out. He, he tells the nobles, you, you, according to Mosaic law, you're not allowed to charge another Jewish brother or sister interest. What are you doing? And they come to their senses, and they all agree, and, and everybody agreed with this whole thing. Yeah, we need to help each other out. We don't need to put, place burdens and oppress people here. And so we saw that, and all of a sudden, men, are, they're walking around, and they're agreeing with each other, fist bumping, high-fiving, and everything's hunky-dory at that point. And so that brings us to this morning, Nehemiah chapter 6. And so chapter 6 is an amazing story. And, and let me ask you something. Do you think the opposition stops? No, not even. It, it simply regroups. It recalculates. It finds a different angle to attack because the weapon of choice in chapter 6 now becomes fear. You know, fear is a great deterrent to resurgence. It's a great deterrent to perseverance. I mean, if you want to stop somebody from persevering, just crank up the fear factor a little bit and watch what happens. And so in chapter 6, we see a conspiracy is beginning to build against Nehemiah in order to create fear in him. And so I'm not going to read chapter 6. I mean, I'm going to read chapter 6, but I'm not going to ask you to stand for chapter 6 this morning. It's kind of long, so you can just sit there and relax. But here's what I want you guys to do. As I'm reading through chapter 6, Every time that you hear the word frightened or afraid, I want you to go, ooh. Can you do that? Let me, let me test you out. Frightened. Oh, man, y'all are good. Afraid. You got it, man. This is going to be fun. Nehemiah chapter 6. It's starting in verse 1. It says, and now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab and and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. I, I love how he's laying out details right there. He just feels like he's just got to, in parentheses, throw that in there. I'm not quite finished yet. And then verse 2, it says, And Sam Ballot and Geshen said to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to the saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And you see, when an open letter, you know what that means? See, back in that day when you were sending a letter to somebody, they would roll it up in a scroll, and they would put that wax on there, and a signet ring goes on it, a seal, because nobody else was supposed to read that but the person it was going to. This was intentional right here. This was very intentional. They want this letter to get out among the people on the way as it's making its way to Nehemiah. And so he... Continues on, and I don't even know where I'm at. Where am I? What verse am I at? Where is it? 
There you go. Let me go back up to verse 7. It says, and, and, and you have also set up for prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king hears of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you have said have been done for you and you are inventing these out of your own mind. And they all wanted to frighten. There you go. Us thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. And now when I went up to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, and the son of Mehetabel, who was confined in his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that the God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act this way in sin, and they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophets at Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so when the wall was finished, the 25th day of the month of Yule, in 52 days, and when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid, and they fell greatly into their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in the days of the nobles of Judah, sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Shechaniah and the son of Arah and his son Jehohanan, that's a hard one to say, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah and his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. You got it. Let's pray. Father, my only hope this morning, God, that you would speak through me, Lord. So I humbly submit to you, Father God. Father, we can only ask you to take your word this morning and plant it in our hearts, God. Lord, we just pray that you would create a resurgence in all of our hearts and in the life of this church, God, so that we could bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been said that great people are just ordinary people who refuse to quit. It's like the Rocky illustration that Jeff talked about last week, and he explained that Rocky most likely knew that he couldn't feed Apollo Creed and Rocky won. He, he just wanted to go the distance. He, he just wanted to prove himself to everybody. And man, that dude was beat up in that match and, and his face was all bloodied and out of proportion that again, Sylvester Stallone's face is kind of out of proportion. I always thought he looks like one of those claymation type creatures, you know. But man, his eyes were swollen shut. They was all bloodied up. And, and man, he still <laughs> refused to quit. He goes the distance. But great people are just ordinary people who just refuse to give up. They refuse to quit. And so the question becomes, how many people have given up in the church over the years? 
How many people have not fulfilled what God would have for them? How many people have never fulfilled God's will for their life as individuals, let alone the work of his church? And I think the main reason for that is fear. We fear that something's going to happen. Maybe it's the fear of unknown, or maybe it's the fear of failure, or maybe it's the fear of what people might think. Maybe it's a fear of personal inability. Maybe the fear of just stepping up. I don't know. But here's a great acronym for the word fear. I came across this as I was preparing this message. It's false evidence appearing real. How true is that? Listen to this quote by Elizabeth Elliot. Fear arises when we imagine that everything depends on us. You see, fear begins to arise in us when we begin to depend on ourselves and not God. So let me put it to you a little bit more in simple terms. Fear is a liar. Fear is an absolute liar. In fact, 90% of the things that freak you out have never happened. Do you know that? 90% of the things that freak you out have you never even, it never even seen close to happening. They never, they don't even seem real, but so many times they just turn out to be a lie. My son, Carl, he's our oldest son, and that boy, anything out of the ordinary freaks him out. He's still like the same old, same old kind of guy, you know what I'm saying? Even as a young child, and so every, every October we would go up to the mountains to see the leaves change and we'd go to Dollywood because in October you can ride the rise one after another. You, there's no lines. You can ride them as many times as you want. And we were out to ride these rides, and he was having a good time riding these kind of like, you know, little simple rides, no big challenge there. And all of a sudden we get to blazing fury. <laughs> It's an awesome roller coaster. It's not very long, but it's radical, man. This thing's flying, and it does one of those loop things, you know, super quick. It's a, it's a tight loop, so it just, you know, and he's looking at that thing, and no way. He's not having it. He's freaking out, you know, and he starts welling up like he's going to cry. And at about that point, I had to pull the dad card out, you know. I said, you're getting on this roller coaster, son. <laughs> We're all going to ride the coaster. And so I made him get on. That might sound cruel, but see, I know my son. I knew he was going to love this thing. And so we got on that thing, man, that thing just took off. And, and we went and we got to that loop. And, whew, and as soon as we got past that loop, he looked at me because I was sitting next to him. He started laughing. And we got to the end of that roller coaster. He goes, Dad, can we do it again? And so many times the things we fear, there's really nothing to it. We just need to face it. We need to embrace it. But fear is seeking to do a lot of things in our lives today, and it's Seeking to do some things in your life. It'll, seeking to do some things in your family's life, your friend's life, and even in the life of this church as we move forward. But here's what fear wants to do. I want to show you three things. Three things that fear has been attempting to do. Fear has been attempting to do this 2,400 years ago when, when this took place. And fear is beginning to do that to us today. So here they are. Three things that fear wants to do. They want to take you out. Fear wants to make you out, and I'll explain that in a, in a bit. And also, fear wants to fake you out. It's what fear does. So first, let's look at what fear will do. Fear will take you out. How does it do that? 
by controlling you. Fear will take you out by controlling you. Remember the old marionettes, the old puppets? You know, they were on strings. Everything's animated nowadays. The kids don't know anything about that sort of thing. And yeah, maybe I'm just seriously dating myself. But remember the old marionettes? You know, you had that puppet master up there, and, you know, he was holding that cross-like thing, and it had, like, five strings. One controlled the head, one controlled, or the, each one of them controlled the arms and the legs. And, and man, those guys are awesome because they can make that thing look lifelike. But, see, that's what fear does. It controls you. It can make you move over here or over there. It can make you do this. It can make you do that. That's exactly what fear does in our life. And I love what our text says today because Nehemiah, he's wise enough to see right through the fear, through these attacks that Satan was dishing out to him. So let's go back to verses 1 through 4 and then look at it. It says, now when Sambalat and Tobat and Tobat, you know, I keep wanting to say Tobia, and the reason why is because it's actually his pronunciation, Tobia, okay? So sometimes if you hear me go Tobia or Tobiah, I don't know what to do because I'm just going back and forth between two different pronunciations. So Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although I had time that I had not set up the doors in the gates. But Sam Ballot and Geshem sent to me saying, come let us meet together at Hecatherum, man, I can't even speak this morning, to the plain of, oh, no. But they intended to do me harm. Verse 3, and I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down now. Why should I the work, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I mean, that's a great question, is it not? And they sent me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. So here we see yet again, Sembalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are kind of like the bad boys of the day. They're kind of rolling up in there to the, to the wall of Jerusalem on their Harleys. or probably more like camel Harleys. Not really sure. But here's what's going on here. Clearly, they are being used by the opposition. See, there's principalities and powers going on behind the scene that nobody can see it. But yet, he's, he's using these guys to accomplish it. He's using it to take it down. So this is not so much a, a, a wall thing here. This is stopping a resurgence in the hearts and lives of the people. And so it's true that Symbalad and his crew, it's true they didn't like the Jews. They weren't Jews. They didn't like them. But there's a darker, more sinister plot that's going on behind the scenes here that was guiding them. And the devil was using them because he doesn't want Nehemiah and the rest of Jerusalem to worship God and continue the work of rebuilding the wall. I mean, Satan would rather people just to focus on the light beam in the dark room. And maybe even the dust in the room. Because it's safer for you that way. At least that's what we think. See, he doesn't want you to embrace the source of the light beam. He doesn't want you to embrace that. So, Sam Ballard and his cronies, they were nothing more than instruments of fear. And so they called Nehemiah out. That's what they're doing here. They're calling the dude out. They want to get him out from Jerusalem and out into the open. I mean, they don't just want to rough him up to intimidate him, man. They want to kill him. And so they try these other tactics as we saw last week in, four, in chapter 4 and 5, and it, none of that works. So all of a sudden, they're switching the tactics here. Now they just want to end this thing. We're tired of messing around. Let's just get him out in the open. It's kind of like the old saying, if you want to end all things, just go to the head of snake. Cut that off. The rest of the people, they will run in fear. 
So that's what's going on there. And, and if Nehemiah had gone out into the plain of oh no, then it would have probably been an oh no moment for him because that's what fear does. Anytime fear begins to come in our life, it, 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 that's what happens. It's one of those oh no moments in our lives. But let me tell you something. Fear will never produce the will of God in your life. And I think at this point, it's important to point out that there's two kinds of fear. There's godly fear and there's ungodly fear. And godly fear kind of has two parts to it. You know, there's godly fear that, you know, we, we reverence God. We're in awe of, of who he is. And because we're in awe of who he is, that causes us to willfully submit and worship to him. But then there's another kind of godly fear. It's an emotion that God gives us. It's a good fear. It's, it's meant to protect us. It's like when you're going down a, a trail, hiking on a trail, and you, you see a rattlesnake, okay? And you begin to think, you know, that's a good time to pray God. Right there, God, what should I do? You know, God's like, back up, run, okay? See, that's what God wants us to do. Whenever we're fearing for something, God wants us to clue him in on it. He wants us to come to him and ask him what to do. But then, but then other than that, there's ungodly fear. Now, this is kind of like anxiety is one type of godly fear. And, and by the way, anxiety and fear, they're kind of like kissing cousins. They're, they're not exactly the same, but they're very close. In fact, where you find one, where you find anxiety, you're going to find fear. So they're kind of like kissing cousins here. But anxiety really involves more about worrying about what could possibly happen. It may happen. Hadn't happened yet, but it could possibly happen. But ungodly fear, it gives a little bit, it gives further than that. Actually, it goes much further than that. It's more convincing that what is feared will happen. And so to the point, it begins to control our lives, just like those puppets, those marionettes. See, ungodly fear takes God out of the equation. Why? Because when we fear, we start looking to ourselves and not to God. And God, ungodly fear is that kind of fear that we're commanded not to have it. You know, God often in his word commands us not to have that kind of fear. The kind of fear that focuses on self and our circumstances and not God. Look at what it says in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So we see here, when, when, whenever fear arises, God wants us to bring him into the equation here. This is what Nehemiah is doing in our text today. He brings God into the picture every single time. He doesn't pray these long, drawn-out you know, flowery prayers. He usually prays these little short, little, very powerful sentence prayers. And we've been seeing them here and there throughout our time in Nehemiah. We're going to see a couple of them today. But this is what he does every single time. So this is what we see so far, that fear wants to take us out. But you know what fear also wants to do? Fear wants to make you out. Fear wants to make you out to be something that you're actually not. Man, that's one that we don't typically see coming down the road at us. Look at verses five through nine. He says, in the same way, 
Sinvalid for the fifth time. This dude is not giving up. There has been four times and now he's hitting him for the fifth time. He sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it was reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, false, <laughs> that you and the Jews until, intend to rebel. False. This is why you are building the wall. Not even close. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Nope, wrong. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. False. And now the king will hear of these reports. <laughs> Not good. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten. Woo, come on, you're lagging behind now. Us thinking that their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, here's a little short prayer. This is all he does. What's he say? Now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So this is the fifth attempt to draw Nehemiah out into the open from Jerusalem. It, it was from this deceptive tactic, trying to make him out to be something that he simply was not. And for me, this tactic right here actually is kind of a genius because it will probably worked on me. <laughs> there's one thing I can't stand, and there's probably one thing that you guys can't stand, is when you hear about somebody saying something about you that's not true. Man, doesn't that drive you crazy? You, you just almost cannot resist to go up to them and confront them, especially if you're from the west side, <laughs> right? I mean, so this would have worked on Donald, I will guarantee you. But here's the cool thing about it. It, it didn't work on Nehemiah. And I love that. And I'm so proud of Nehemiah because his tactic simply does not work on him. Why? Because he prayed, oh God, strengthen my hands. And that's so cool because we learned something very valuable here. Because he said in verse 8, you guys are just making this stuff up. It never happened. There's nothing to see here. And then Nehemiah just prays this one little short prayer, this powerful prayer of perseverance in verse 9. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. You see, fear will never produce the will of God in our lives. And so instead of getting all caught up in the, you know, defending himself and the, about stuff that, you know, wasn't even true, he just prays and he just prays for God to do the opposite of what they were trying to do. Nehemiah's like, they want to weaken us, God, but Lord, strengthen our hands. But you know what else fear does? Fear lies about us. It lies to us. See, fear says, you're not smart enough. You're not worthy. You don't fit in. Fear says you're not loved. Fear says you're not even cut out for this. You don't matter. And I will guarantee you there is somebody sitting here today that fear has been leveraging a lie against you probably for years. And it's kept you from doing a work for God, the, the very work that God had set out for you to do. And it's probably something that you, you can really see yourself doing at some point in time in your life. 
but it made you out to be something that you're not. And so you bought into it. But God says you don't have to be smart enough. I'll do it through you. God says you do have worth. God says you are loved. God says you are cut out for this. He made you for such a time as this. God says you do matter. And just like the devil doesn't want you to do anything for God, he doesn't want you to live a life that reflects the character of God. And those tactics all come from a form of fear. Again, it's false evidence appearing real. So Sam Ballot, he was using this make you out tactic here. In other words, he was using false evidence to make Nehemiah out to be something that was a lie in order to draw Nehemiah out into the open so they could kill him. And it would have been easy for Nehemiah probably laying in his bed at night going, oh no, they're going to get this letter to the king. It's open. People are going to read it along the way. It would have been really easy to sit in his bed worried about that. Man, I need to get my brother Hananiah and, and Hananiah. I need to get them up. Hey, you need to get to the king before that letter does. It's, it's not going to be, it's going to get ugly. He could have been worrying about all of those things. But he doesn't do that. He makes no effort to send someone to counter those false claims. He just simply prays a competent prayer. Think about that. Oh, Lord, strengthen my head. I'm going back to bed. And he has no worries with it. But once again, because of Nehemiah's perseverance, God blesses and the make you out tactic failed. But old fear doesn't stop there in our story today. It just simply finds another angle. That's what fear does. It's always doing that. So now because of everything else has failed so far, they've tried to take Nehemiah out. They, they've tried to make Nehemiah out to be something he was. And now the tactic turns to let's fake him out fear wants to fake you out this morning know that look out for it verse 10 through 14 now when i went to the house of shemiah and the son of deliah the son of mehetabel who was confined at his home he said let us meet together in the house of god within the temple let us close the door of the temple for they are coming to kill you See, is instilling fear. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood that and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid. Ooh, y'all are good. And act this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And here he goes with one of those quick, short, powerful prayers again. We see it the second time in our text today. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat. Oh, my God. According to those things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid so Shemaiah he's he's the kind of guy what we call today a mole 
He's the insider. He's kind of like the double agent. He's kind of like for the Americas and he's for the KGB, so to speak. He's hired to fake Nehemiah out. He seems like a good guy. He's coming across like a friend of Nehemiah. Hey, they're going to kill you, dude. They're coming for you by night. Let me hide you. He's seeming like a good friend. But Shemaiah, he, he's not the, this is not where he's only mentioned. He's actually mentioned throughout the Word of God. He's mentioned in First and Second Chronicles. He's mentioned throughout Ezra. So he would have known who this guy is. He's a, he's a priest. He's not a high priest, but he's, a, he's of one of the priests. But he's hired to fake Nehemiah out. Remember back in uh, chapter 3 when we were going through that? And in fact, in chapter 3, I think it's verse 29, we actually see Shemaiah. He's actually working on the wall. You talk about a double agent. See, that's what they do, man. They get infiltrated into the community and everything. See, that's what's going on here. But he's been hired by Simbalat and Tobiah to blend in. That's what double agents do. You guys ever been betrayed by a friend, a relative? then you know what's going on here. This, this is exactly what Nehemiah is facing here. And so Shemaiah is telling Nehemiah that Toby and Simbalat are going to kill you. Let me hide you in the temple where they cannot get to you. Because here's the thing, they weren't allowed to go in the temple. That's why he's saying this. So he's trying to trick Nehemiah to go into the temple. Nehemiah was a layman. He wasn't a priest. He's not supposed to be in there. This is the, what the trick is. This is why they're trying to fake him out. They're trying to get him in there so when the word gets out, Nehemiah was in the temple. All of a sudden, they're going to look at me and, oh, that's not good. They're going to make accusations again that he's not reverent for God, and he would have lost the confidence of the people if the word had got out. But Nehemiah is one up on man. He sees this coming. Why? Because he's praying to God. He's bringing God into the question. He's not relying on himself. He's bringing God into the situation. So the people would have turned their backs on him. You know what? It always pays off. Because Nehemiah, it pays off to know the word of God because Nehemiah knows what's going on here. And he knows Levitical law. He knows that he's not supposed to be in there. See, this is where it pays to know the word of God. Because the more we know the word of God, then we're able to recognize the lies and see the fear coming. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He's trusting and he's believing. And yes, he's staying within the walls of Jerusalem, but in his mind here, he's just trusted God. So next we see how the walls were finished. Verse 15 through 19. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Il. 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. And fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam the son of Berechiah and his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And so we see here yet again the snares 
would be in place for Nehemiah to fall into. And I mean, Proverbs 29, 25 is a great verse along these lines. It teaches that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So here's a real moment for us today, guys. I want to I boil all this down to right here. Fear prospers where faith is lacking. If your life is being controlled by fear, fear is prospering in your life. And you have allowed fear to flourish in a place where God should be flourishing in your life. And by the way, fear is not meant to be managed. It's actually meant to be defeated. It's meant to overcome it. And here's the thing. If we put our faith in God's word, God will always be faithful to his word and we can always trust in that. So I want to exhort you guys today. Cling to the word. Hold fast to the word. Stand on the word of God. Fear's a liar. Fear wants to say otherwise. Proverbs 119.11 is not going to be on the board, but it tells us that we need to hide the word of God in our heart. Why? So that we will not sin against him. And what is given into fear? This is sin against God. Why? He commands us not to. And Satan's a liar, and he knows how to take you out. He knows how to make you out. And he certainly knows how to fake you out. And he can make it even seem like, this is, this is a good thing. But you always need to go back to Scripture, guys. You always need to ask God to help you see what's going on here. I think this is one of the most valuable lessons that we've seen so far in Nehemiah because that's what he's showing us. Man, always take it to God. Go back to the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Trust on the Word of God. Stand on the Word of God. Hide the Word of God in your heart. And God's not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 affirms that to us. In fact, let me close with this this morning. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Some translations say of a sound mind. Man, I, I kind of like that better. Because fear is not meant to be managed, guys. It's meant to be defeated. It's meant to overcome it. And, and if you guys ever need a, a, a really good verse, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. If you ever want a really good verse to get you through some fear, some moments in your life, Isaiah 41.10. I don't know of a better passage than that right there. Because in Isaiah 41.10, we see some really cool things. It's written in the imperative. In other words, it's a command. But the cool thing is that the command is followed by a promise. And I, there may be other places in the Word of God that, 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 that demonstrates that. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. But I do know that's what we see here. Check it out. Isaiah 41.10. Can you pull that up, Cheryl? No? It's okay. I have hidden it in my heart. <laughs> fear not command imperative 
promise, for I am with you. Don't you love that? Command, be not dismayed. Man, here comes a bunch of promises. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Just like Nehemiah. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Who sits at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Hold on to that verse. There's going to be times you're going to need it. Never forget that verse. It's such a powerful verse to help us through things in our lives. And I want to encourage you to do that. I want to go ahead and call the worship team back up. And as they're coming up, I want to bring it back full circle this morning. Because resurgence requires perseverance. It always has. It always will. And what is it that stops us from persevering? Fear. And what stops fear dead in its tracks? A close relationship with God through the Word of God. That's why Isaiah 41.10 is so awesome. Hide it in your heart. See, guys, you can, you can choose to focus in on a dark room, sunbeam coming through, some dust particles. Or you can get the courage to get up and look through the sunbeam. Look along the sunbeam. It begins to reveal some things to you that you'd never even imagine. And all of a sudden you begin to see the source of the sunbeam. The one who created it. The one who created the sun. I just wanted to read to you a chorus of a hymn. It's like it was tailor-made for that article, Meditation in a Tool Shed, or maybe Meditation in a Tool Shed came from this chorus of this old hymn. We all probably know it. We've sang it hundreds of times. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of the earth will go strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. So the invitation is this, guys. If you've never had a time, you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. No better time than right now. I'll be right down here. I'd love nothing better than to talk to you about that today. If you're listening online, contact us on our website. Go to the bottom of our website. There's a form there. Man, I promise you, if you fill that out, I will get back to you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just need some prayer, that you, some things that you're going through. Well, I'll be right down here. The invitation has come. I'd love to pray for you this morning.